Scott Drake is a social entrepreneur on a mission to make best-in-class leadership more accessible. He's the founder of Jump Coach. He's a former tech executive that has made every mistake in the book. He worked for a lot of different technology companies. He even worked for Microsoft in the early days. He owned a software development company for about seven years. He was never a good student. He just didn't learn well in school. He originally went to school for becoming a mechanic before he realized it wasn't for him. He worked at a hardware stores and did sales for Circuit City. He worked at several restaurants and even worked at an amusement park. He unfortunately had a medical incident at 21 years old that caused him to reevaluate his life. He realized he wasn't good at things he wasn't interested in. So, eventually he broke into technology and the rest is history. Listen to follow Scott's journey. Visit nodegree.com to start your journey. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nodegree. Every contribution is appreciated. Remember, this show wouldn't be possible without you. Let's get this show started. Hello, Scott. Do you mind giving a brief introduction of what you do today? Sure, John. Thanks for having me on. It's kind of strange. I think for the last 25 years, I've introduced myself as either a technologist or a tech executive. But uh, for the last three months, I've kind of shifted gears and I'm a social entrepreneur on a mission to make best-in-class leadership training available to, to anyone who needs it. And that kind of comes out of my background of coming up through the ranks in tech. And I made every mistake in the book. And I thought there's just got to be a better way to grow leaders, a better way to teach leaders. So about five years, I started kind of innovating in that area. And last fall, I said, you know, I just need it. This is where I want to spend the next 10 years of my life. So, yeah, so I'm not a tech exec anymore. I'm a social a social entrepreneur. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit of a different intro for me. I mean, how's the switch? Like, how was making the switch? You know, I think I'd done in tech what I could, at least more of a hands-on tech. I still want to do some consulting in the HR side of tech, on the people side of tech, because I think there's a lot of improvement to be made there, especially in leadership. You know, so, so I definitely want to kind of stay involved. But yeah, I'd been an entrepreneur before. I'd, I'd owned a company for, for about seven years, owned a dev shop for a little while. So I've kind of done this entrepreneur thing before. I haven't done a social enterprise before, which is a little bit different, you know, even more. It says we're not really, we're, we, we need to make a profit, but we're not purely profit focused. So there's some differences there. I'm just excited to be doing some different stuff and excited to have the opportunity to do some different stuff. So, so yeah, it's all good. I'm, I'm just having a good time. Okay, cool. So let's kind of take it back, right? What did you want to be in high school? How was high school like for you? You know, it's funny. I know you asked that question. So I had to go back and kind of think about that. But, but yeah, I mean, it, number one, I wasn't a good student. Looking back, it's like, you know, I, I like things like architecture. Uh, the only thing I was really good at in high school was photography. Looking back, it's like I was kind of that kid that there was nothing I did well that society valued. Right. I wasn't a good student. I wasn't a good athlete. I can't sing or dance. I'm not pretty enough to make, you know, to, to make a, a living off of off of that. Side. So it was really what can I do if I'm not good at any of the things that society typically values? So, yeah, when I first got out of school, I ended up going to a mechanic school. because I love cars and I love building things. And I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun to be able to build cars and do some stuff like that. And after about three or four months of packing bearings and changing brakes and changing tires and that kind of stuff, I'm like, I'm not sure this is what I have in mind. So. Uh, so yeah, so coming out of school, you know, I, I really didn't know. And I just really, I wasn't the athlete. I could go do athletic stuff. I wasn't, you know, the great student to go do student stuff. So I just, it just, what are you going to do? I don't know. So what'd you end up doing after the, you did the three, four months of the car shop? So, I mean, the one thing I had was a work ethic. Like that's the, that's the one good thing I got really from my parents. So yeah, so I started working, you know, when I was in high school, 
uh, the grocery store first. And I was, you know, the one kid that the supervisor was like, I know you're going to do a good job. You know, no matter what it is, I know you're going to do a good job. So that always, you know, had that kind of going for me. But yeah, so I worked at a grocery store in high school. I worked at a hardware store for two or three years. I got into sales at uh, Circuit City, which is kind of like the best buy of the day. So I did that for a while. And uh, just kind of, you know, I worked in restaurants and I worked at an amusement park and just, you know, did those things. I tried school a little bit, but just wasn't, you know, doing that good. Mostly I just kind of partied and just, you know, enjoyed being, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. Yeah. When I was 23, it's not uncommon for tall, skinny guys to collapse a lung, which sounds kind of crazy. But, uh, but yeah, I was just at work one day and I just got this big pain in my back. And it was my lung collapsing. Wow. So, yeah. So I ended up in the hospital for like seven or eight days. And when I'm laying in the hospital, I'm like, all right, I got to get a little bit more serious about life. So I decided at that point to kind of just sell everything I had and pack up. And I moved uh, one town over and uh, University of Kentucky has a uh, community college on campus. So I went back to school for a little while and just wanted to get back in a different environment that wasn't as much partying. And I could maybe try to be a little more serious with, uh, with finding something to do with my life. In high school, you said you weren't a good student. Like, why weren't you a good student? Like, what was tough for you about school? Yeah, so, I mean, the things I was interested in, I would go really deep, right? Like photography. I got into really big into, into what are called pinhole cameras, which are basically homemade cameras. And I would build those, you know, just do really different and innovative things with stuff like that. So the things I really enjoyed, I would go really big on. The things I didn't enjoy, I would just scrape by, right? I would do just enough. I graduated with a 1.9 GPA. I passed every class. Never failed a grade, but I barely, you know, I barely scraped the I mean, that's pretty smart doing the just enough to pass, <laughs> right? I don't know. I think that there's like effort in that. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's it, it's not how I learned. Like, I've spent the last five years actually working in education. So I've learned what education is, how education can work. And it's one of those big areas of focus that I've actually had over probably the last 15 or 20 years. As I've learned, it's just how school teaches is just not how I learn. Right. I learned by doing, I learned by experience. I learned through, you know, experience and repetition. How school works just isn't how I learned. So it took me a long time to figure that out, you know, and to, and to not be self-conscious about that. But that's just kind of the reality. Looking back, I can just say that. Yeah, it's just not how I learned. So you went through the stints and, you know, you worked at the that shop. You went back to the community college. Right. Now, what came next after that? So the nice thing about the community college on campus, the University of Kentucky, is that you have access to everything on campus. So they have a student newspaper there. And when I went back, it's like I was going to find some way to get involved in some other stuff. And I started working at the student newspaper. One of the things I've done in high school is I worked at the yearbook. And uh, when I went back to school, I'm like, I'd like to get involved with the, with the newspaper. I enjoy, you know, some design stuff. I enjoy graphic design. I enjoy a little bit of writing. So, so I got involved there. And this was, you know, mid-90s. The web really hadn't taken hold yet. The advisor knew that I was kind of into, into computers and, and he, um, he approached me and said, hey, take a look at this thing called the web that some of these newspapers are starting to put up sites. Can you do that for us? And what year was this? This was 1995. Okay, so early days of the internet. Yeah, so, yeah, so he's like, um, I'm like, I don't know, but let me find out. So I went home over that Christmas break and bought the one book I could find on, on the web. And it was a book on the, on the web browser called Mosaic, which is the original uh, web browser. And it had a couple, it had like one chapter on HTML. And that was it, because that, that's really all there was back then, right? So, so I um, figured that out, uh, got back to school that winter, and basically moved into the production room overnight. You know, I would go in and do some production work, and they'd wrap up their production work at about 10 o'clock at night. And then I would go in and start working on taking all that day's paper and put it on the, on, on the web. 
And that was taking about three or four hours. And then I would just stay until about eight in the morning when the, when the day crew would come in is when I would go home. And I would just spend all that time overnight learning, right? I didn't have internet at home. I didn't have, you know, web at home. So my one place to go and do that stuff was to just sit there all night and learn. And I did that for about six months. We ended up winning some national awards. Like the first national awards they gave out the collegiate media, we won. And that got me a ton of attention. That got me recruited out of school into professional papers because all the professional papers, they weren't, they didn't have anything yet. Like there wasn't a USA Today online. There wasn't a New York Times online. So, so yeah, so I ended up getting recruited out and that's kind of what got me into professionally what I ended up doing. That was like your big break. You learned a lot. What job did you end up getting? So I started with it mostly in publishing. You know, uh, the uh, the professional newspaper was Lexington Herald Leader, which is which is uh, there in Central Kentucky. Uh, Thoroughbred Times, which was a horse racing magazine. Again, we're kind of a big horse racing area. They have a parent company out of out in Irvine, California, called Fancy Publications, which they do like all the dog fancy, cat fancy, all the animal stuff. So we built some of the early social media type of stuff around dogs and cats and fish and birds, which was insane. It was absolutely insane. Because it was just like, you know, th th you just look how crazy that stuff is now. When, and then when the web first came out, it was just so brand new and so different. So yeah, so I did all that kind of stuff for about three years. And then I kind of said, okay, it was ready. It was time for me to leave Lexington. Right? I went back there as a non-traditional student. I didn't want to be the 30-year-old the hanging out on campus. I didn't want to be the old guy in the club, as I think Chris Rock put it. So it's just, I had to do something. So I, I kind of packed up and I moved back to Louisville and I started looking for, around for a job and I ended up getting recruited out to Microsoft, which was just mind-blowing. It was just wild because it's like, okay, you know, I, I'm self-taught, no degree, barely graduated high school. And I get a call from a recruiter saying, you should really, you know, I was doing JavaScript and there weren't a lot of people doing JavaScript. And she's like, you should do this. Don't sell yourself short and just go through the interview and see what happens. Right. So I ended up, I ended up after, you know, spending a few years in publishing, getting my first real job, you know, in the industry. And that was out of Microsoft. Wow. That's a, how was the job at Microsoft? It was good, man. It was, um, I stayed out there for about a year. Because I wasn't sure, again, I'm in Kentucky and I wasn't sure, I didn't really want to stay out there. It's a lot of rain. You know, back in the day, they paid okay, but they paid a lot in stock. But it's like they're, they were getting beat up really bad by the government at that point in time. So it's like, do I want to invest 10 years here and make, you know, two thirds of what I can make someplace else and hope the stock goes somewhere? I wish I had now, right? The stock. I mean, you, know, you just never know, right? Who would have known like, hey, Microsoft? It was the point that I really kind of stopped worrying about not having a degree. What I found going out there was that I brought something different than a lot of the people who came in there with, you know, PhDs and masters and, you know, at least bachelors and that kind of stuff. Like they were taught kind of how to think about problems and they would come at it from one way, but I would just come at it from a completely different way. Like I was just, you know, far more creative in some ways and, and that worked well and it fit in pretty well out there because I kind of, they, they appreciated the different thinking, at least the teams that I was part of. Right. So I don't think it's quite as rare today. And I don't know how rare it was back then. But again, I was just kind of one of the few people that was working in a technology that they needed. And, and you know, so it just kind of worked out for me to, to do that. But it was a really good experience. I mean, I met some contacts out there that I'm still in touch with. It's uh, I ended up down in the Valley working at a startup. And it was uh, one of the founders was my boss from Microsoft. So it's like, you know, it kind of built uh, built me a little bit of a network. And it, and it kind of got me into some circles that I probably wouldn't have been able to. And then it also just, man for not having a degree, it was, it's just, you know, I was kind of made at that point. You come back to Kentucky and you're the guy who used to work at Microsoft and it's like everybody went, you know, so it just, it, it was, you know, it just, uh, 
you know, things just kind of took off after that. I mean, that's the beauty of technology. It's like if you know something that very few people know and that's in demand, they they don't care. They're like, well, you're one of the few guys that knows this. I don't care. And oftentimes the technology is so new that colleges aren't teaching it. It's not in the curriculum. So, yeah, that's the challenge I had is like I'd go to my some of my professors and I was doing some stuff in Photoshop. And they're like, I don't know anything about Photoshop. Like, ask me about Pascal or ask me about, you know, some of the other stuff that they're working in. But it's like, I'm working in Perl and HTML and Photoshop. And they're not, that's just not stuff that they know. And that's understandable, right? I didn't understand that as a, as a you know, young, brash kid. But I understand it now. Like, I understand that it's just too big of, a, of an industry. And they're not there to teach a specific, you know, tech. They're there to teach you how to think, right? And it's, it's um, so yeah, I have a little bit different attitude now than I did. I mean, don't we all, we grow and we learn and we figure out like, hey, but no, that is one of the great things about tech, right? But I've also found that it's not only tech, right? If you can solve problems and you can position yourself as I can solve this problem for you, then that kind of takes some of the, the demands off sometimes, right? So that's what I, the other thing I do is I really say, you know, when I came into my, my most recent job, you know, I didn't position myself as somebody who can come in and build a tech. I, I positioned myself as somebody who can come in and build a team. And that's completely different, right? And that's what I did. And that's what he needed somebody to do. So again, if you can put in the work and then demonstrate you can do it and position yourself against that, then yeah, it, you can, it's not just tech that you can do that with, in my opinion. So you've been in technology, right? You've seen technology, you've seen the industry. How has the industry changed over time? Like, how is it different than it was in the 90s? Or ha- does it have a lot of the same flavor? I think it has a lot of the same flavors. It's harder because it's more comp- the tech is more complicated. Like back in those days, the technologies they're using were pretty simple. It was okay to use them in a simple way. Right now, the number of technologies, the pace of change of technology, it just all changes so fast that one of the things I work a lot with uh, technology, they feel like they're going to become uh, obsolete. It's easy to feel like that now when things change as fast as they do. So it's, it's, um, it's different. It's a different industry. I'm glad, you know, I'm kind of glad I'm not doing that now. Although I've thought about falling back into it. I've got a couple of Python books over my shoulder here that, that it's like, you know, I, I still enjoy it. I still kind of do it as a hobby, but, and I can always kind of go back and do it in some ways, but it's, it's definitely changed. It's, it's harder today, I think, than it was yeah. I feel like know, 10, 15 years ago. You're right. It's different because some things are easier because I know like back then, if you wanted, you had to like buy servers, you had to do this, you had to do X, Y, Z. Now it's like, oh, I just buy something, create a Wix site and you can create it. Whereas like before you really had to know a lot more, right? If you wanted to add payments to your website, right? Now they have like one-stop shops, like a Shopify site, right? And you're up in 30 minutes and all that. So I will say it's different. And there's so many courses too, that it's like now on your phone, like while you're on the bus, you could learn how to code. So it's a very different environment. If you look, you know, back in the day, I spent all night at the student newspaper to get access to the computers I needed to learn, right? Now you don't need that. Like most people now at least have tablets or at least have some kind of a laptop. And, you know, back then, yeah, I needed a server. I needed some place to really be able to put it, to look at and to do some stuff. And I ended up, you know, when I first was doing professional work, I had to buy a computer to serve as my server, you know, and that kind of stuff. And now you don't need any of that. You, you can, you know, there's VS Code. There's all these, these open source things that you can download, all the software that I used to have to spend hundreds or even thousands of dollars to get. You can get uh, developer versions of all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of free courses. There's a lot of really inexpensive courses. It's the information and the, the infrastructure and the technology is all there to learn easier, but there's more to learn. That's the challenging part of it. It's just so much. And it's like, it gets overwhelming for people just to kind of like, what do I do? And, you know, so you mentioned that you could write a book on the mistakes you've made. What would be the chapters in that book? What are the ones that stand out? The mistakes that stand out? Yeah, I mean, so the big ones really were probably more as I got into leadership. You know, when I first kind of got that first chance to lead, 
And I go out there and, and, and my old boss from Microsoft, he hands me, you know, eight or 10 engineers. And he's like, here, lead them, right? <laughs> We've got to get this thing built. Here, here's your team to work with them. I'd studied a lot about quote unquote leadership, but I had not studied the right things, right? I studied things like entrepreneurship and, and some of those things. So I really didn't know how to work through a leadership to me is working through others to get things done, right? It's how do you work through other people, right? You can't do everything with your own two hands. How do you work with other people in a way that they're motivated and they're happy and that they're going to bust through walls to get stuff done because there's something in it for them, right? I had no idea what any of that stuff was, right? I, so I was just kind of a little dictator Scott and I was the, the king of silly standards is what I call myself from back then, where it's like, if they couldn't do things the way I wanted it done, then a lot of times I would just go back and redo it to make sure it was done, quote unquote, right. It took me a good, you know, 10 years to really kind of level up and say, uh, leadership is not about me. Leadership is about the team. It's about getting things out of the team. So it just, it was a long, painful journey for many people, including myself. And it's, it's, um, and it was mostly around, detaching my ego from being the technologist and from the old work and, and, and from being the guy who can solve every problem and build everything and detaching my ego from that. And then just kind of reattaching it to being the leader of, you know, letting them be the hero of the story instead of me needing to be the hero of the story. That's just kind of a hard, a hard leap for a lot of people to make. And it, and it took me a little while to do it. So that's, that's where the bulk of my painful mistakes, right? I think we all hopefully make a lot of learning mistakes, right? You make mistakes that you learn from. And, and I think we all have those, you know, I've built a lot of stuff that, you know, sat on a shelf and never got used. But the ones that really left some scars were really all around leadership. So was there like a light bulb moment that happened to you or it was gradual over time? I think it was gradual over time. And then I think I've kind of found some of the science and some of the psychology behind it. And it's, it, you kind of go through enough pain that you start reflecting. Right. And you kind of get into that reflective mode and, and you realize, OK, you know, I've got these standards, but are they really helpful? And other people can't do this. Why? Right. And you just get into this mode of reflection where you begin to say, OK, maybe this isn't the way. Right. Maybe it's, it's not the smartest thing. And then there's definitely some books that helped. Um, you know, Liz Wiseman and Greg McCallum wrote a book called Multipliers that I read that, again, put some put some. Uh, information behind what I was feeling. Maybe you talk to other people and you're like, oh, they're having the exact same journey I've had, right? It's, it's, there's gotta be something to this. There's gotta be something to be learned. So yeah, I don't think it was a, a truly a light bulb moment, but I do think, uh, you know, it, it took a good decade for me to level up and really get good at getting value from other people and working through other people to get things done and giving them a good place to work that they wanted to be. Throughout your career, what would you say was the hardest period of time you went through? I don't know. I think there's different phases. I know I tend to burn out after about four or five years. I enjoy a problem for a period of time, but then I either have done all I can with that problem or I just get tired of, of the, the things that I can't fix. Right. So there's definitely some periods where I get late into a project or I've, you know, I've kind of accomplished what I was set out to, what I, what I was like in the last role, they kind of they hired me to come in and build a team. Well, the team's built, right? I can either sit around and try to figure out something else to do or I can, go do something different. So, uh, so yeah, there's been some periods like that. I don't think that there's really been anything, you know, that left a ton. I got fired the week of Christmas one time. The one time I was fired, I walked in the door. They already had 10 or 12 people working on it. Uh, they were changing technologies. This was the first time that team had ever worked at the technologies. Me and one other guy were the only people there that had any experience with the technology they were using. And as soon as we walked in the door, we're like, this, there's problems, right? This is not going to work. So we were squeaky wheels for like eight or 10 months. And after about 10 months, the director got, I think, got tired of us. He, he, she fired him about two months before. And then the week of Christmas, she just said, okay, we don't need, need you anymore. 
And then like two or three months later, they pulled the plug on the whole project. So that was tough because you don't like getting fired, right? You don't like being, but at the same time, it's like, I was really happy to get out of there because it was just not a good place to be. I'm a, a pretty even keel kind of guy. I, I always try to find the good. I have a big abundance mentality. I've always had an, an abundance mentality. So I always feel like there's always something else out there, right? So even if bad stuff happens, it's kind of like, all right, let's go. There's something else to do. Let's go do it. Let's go figure it out. Let's go do it. So what were your biggest accomplishments? I mean, tech-wise, I was a really good turnaround guy. Like I could come into a project that was challenged and figure out why and turn it around. You know, so there were a couple of projects that I was really proud of that, that um, uh, you know, there was one guy who had a startup down, down here in Kentucky that he was building some tools for farmers to start tracking data. And, um, you know, his previous team, he'd been working on this thing for like four years and he was, you know, millions into this. And he finally just got so frustrated. He fired his whole team and he's like, whatever. So, so he, I got connected him through another guy and, you know, sat down and kind of dug through what he was doing. And it, and it's, you know, we ended up taking a different track where, you know, I told him I could probably get it done in about six months if we just kind of threw away about two thirds of what they had done. Cause they were using some brand new stuff that they'd never used before. I'd never used it before. It wasn't even stable. And that's why they were having all these problems. So we kind of made that decision and did that. So that was really good to be able to within, you know, six, seven months, take this guy who had just been beating his head on the wall for four years to get something done, to actually get it done. And then there was um, a consultant who, who uh, worked with um, financial advisors uh, doing analysis for federal retirement. So if, let's say you're a federal employee and you're curious, what is my retirement worth or when would be a good time to retire? There's all kinds of, of, of stuff that kind of goes into that calculation. And she could do it, but she was doing it all in spreadsheets, which is not all scalable. And uh, the government itself had tried to do some similar projects and they get, you know, a couple of million dollars into a project and they would just scrap it. They're like, it's just too complicated. She and I worked on it for about six months and were able to get a system built up for her that let her do that and let her run her business, right? She was able to then scale her business and run her business. And that was a really big win for me too. I really enjoyed that one because you could see the impact, right? You could see the, the impact that that had on her business and it really opened up, you know, some options for her. So those were... Those are two of the bigger ones, you know, that come to mind. And then this last role I had, the team I built there was just phenomenal. Like they were just truly a great team. And when you can do that and you can pull the right people together and get them working well and, and, and do all those kinds of things, that was probably, you know, that's definitely a highlight, you know, that, that, that I'm definitely pretty proud of. So was there ever a time that the lack of a college degree held you back in some way? I'm sure there were jobs that... Recruiters didn't present to me because, you know, they just required it. Right. But I didn't see them. You know, I think <laughs> there's been a lot of times where I've been like, you know, I bet if I had a degree, I would know that. Right. It's, I'm going to ask a stupid question, but I'm just going to go on and ask a stupid question. And that's OK. I'm OK to do that. Like, I don't I don't mind doing that. But I think that there were definitely some times where I've been like, that's something I may have learned in school, some business thing, some this or that or whatever. I was sitting about three years ago. In my last job. So my last job was a medical education company. I worked with a bunch of MDs, a bunch of doctors, a bunch of, of educators. You know, these are people, they all had letters after the name, lots of letters after the name, right? And we were looking at, at partnering up with another company on something. It was a big deal. Like, so this meeting was put together by the, uh, a, a, a just retired dean of an Ivy League medical school. This is a very well-known type of thing. So, so he pulls that company together and our company together. And there's eight of us sitting in this room and we're going around the room introducing ourselves. Right. And it's, you know, it's just PhD, MD, MD, MD. I mean, you know, so literally, and I'm like, it gets to the end and it's like, I don't have any of that. Right. But 
you know, I was there for a reason and I was, you know, and I contributed what I was there to contribute. And, you know, they were all cool. It wasn't a, a problem, but it was just weird. It was just kind of like, it was just, you know, you feel like, um, man, how did I end up here? Right? How did I end up in this room with truly some of the, the, the leading medical educators in the world talking about how do we better educate medical doctors? It's like, how am I sitting in this room? And it's not just that I'm sitting here, but I'm participating and I have something to contribute. And it's, it's, um, you know, so it was just kind of, it was, it was different. I'm sure that there are opportunities that I, that, that were not presented to me or that I, that I did not pursue or could not pursue. But my philosophy has always been, if that's important to them, then, then that's okay. Right. They have their reason. But again, I have this abundance mindset. And, and to me, there's plenty of other opportunities where that's not an issue. So for me, it's like, you know, you guys do your thing. If that's, if that's important, you go for it. But, uh, luckily I've found plenty of people who it isn't an issue for. Like there's, there's been plenty of things to, to, to go do. So yeah, so that's kind of where I've tried to focus my energy. So if you were 18 again, what would you do differently? And thinking of today's environment too. I don't think I would do a whole lot differently. I would, um, you know, I can't say I would go to school because I just wasn't a good student. And some people just aren't good students, right? It's just, it's just not. I needed some time to explore, right? I needed some time to figure out all right, you don't fit any of the molds of society that you can see, right? Again, you're not athletic. You're not, you know, smart in a book smart way. You don't have any of these things to fall back on. So what is your place? What are you going to do? And I think I just needed that time. Um, you know, I would say to people coming up, you know, don't be afraid to cut your own path. Just focus on others, focus on how you can help others. And you'll find opportunities to go do things. But don't be afraid to, to cut your own path and, and do your own thing. The other thing I think that really benefited me is that I diversified. I wasn't like so narrowly focused on one thing, right? It wasn't just about tech. It was about tech and publishing. And then it was about, you know, tech and other stuff. Then it was about tech and education. Like I got that job at that education company because I had made it a point to study and learn about education. So I diversified my, my, my interest to the point that it, I wasn't just going and selling one thing, right? I was going and selling two or three things. And I think that that helped me. So definitely don't just focus kind of in one thing. And then the third thing is just be picky. I took a lot of jobs early on and I'm glad I did because it gave me some experience. But then as you get experience, you're going to start to understand what you like and what you don't like. Not everybody's going to like the same thing. No employer can be a good employee. They can't be a good place to work for everybody. So they're all kind of geared around different things and different people are going to be happy or, or, or work well or not in others. Don't take it personal. Don't take it that there's something wrong with them or that there's something wrong with you. It's just, you're just not a good fit, right? But you don't have to be a fit in a hundred places. You need one job for the most part, right? You need one or two jobs sometimes, but be picky about what that is. And you're going to find yourself in situations where you can create value, where you can add value, where you can be valuable and where, you know, and where people are going to value that you're there. So yeah, I don't think I would do a ton different than what I did. I, I'm, I'm, it's stressful, but I also see people with degrees stressed out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, stress is part of life. I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. So just figure out what works for you, be good to other people, and go figure it out. What mistakes do you see a lot of people making in technology? I think the two biggest things I see in tech is I see imposter syndrome. We also, we kind of fear like there's this, this super developer that's going to come behind us and just bag on everything we just did, right? Everything I did is crap and somebody's going to come behind me and tell me it's crap, right? They don't exist, right? The, the ones that are out there, they're the jerks in the industry, right? Most of this industry is extremely helpful. You know, so I see people, I think, getting pushed into 
making things too complicated, not feeling like they're good enough. I talked to a lot of kids coming through through code camps. They feel like, oh, I got to keep taking classes. I got to keep taking... I'm like, quit taking classes and just go build something. Just go build something. Figure out how to, you know, build a form and save it to a database. That's 80% of the work in tech. That's all you're doing, right? And then getting it back out in a report. So don't feel like you have to keep learning. Just go build stuff and just, you know, don't worry about, you know, there's not some ideal out there that you're... The ideal that's in your head is worse than what's out there and get past that and just get out there. What advice would you sort of have for like someone young today who's sort of interested in technology? Build stuff. Like seriously, you can go to, I mean, you can go to code camps and I think they're fantastic, right? I think the biggest thing that you can do is build things and then show people that you've built things. Most of the big leaps I've made in my career have been because I've also done some work in nonprofits or I've found some way to... When I first started working at the paper, I was a volunteer and then they paid me minimum wage. And I could do that because I was a student and I kept my, my expenses really, really, really cheap. I mean, I lived in a tiny little apartment, but it kind of gave me that opportunity to work and get experience before I went, you know, and tried to do it professionally. And then the same thing as I got into leadership, I, I found, you know, there's a nonprofit I started working with that was, uh, you know, trying to solve the problem of food deserts. Through that, I met some really interesting people. And when I started applying for executive roles, my references were the people I met at the nonprofit. There's always stuff out there to work on and to do and to help. If you can, if you have the time and, and, and the resource to go do it, and, and mostly it's your time, then there's some things like that that you can do. But, but it's mostly just go out there and find those ways to get experience because that's what's ultimately going to let you demonstrate to somebody that you can help them, that you can add value in those ways. Now, you mentioned that you, know, you weren't a good student. How could education be improved for someone like you? If you look at what I do at Jump Coach, it's, I structure things as challenges. So the way, the way I'm building a lot of that stuff is you have, you have lunch size lessons. You have three, it's made up of three lessons. I mean, you could binge watch the whole thing in about four or five hours. But it's really intended to be watch this hour and then over the next you know, few days to a week, do this, this one exercise and then do this exercise, do this exercise over the next two or three weeks, right? And it, what it does is it brings experience into it. And they're getting better at this with education as a whole. You know, a lot of the work we were doing for medical schools was about how do you do this flipped classroom stuff? How do you give them something that they could watch on the internet? And then when they come to class, they're discussing it. They're not coming to class for a lecture. They're coming to class to discuss, right? So similar things like that, that, that you could improve. In my opinion, and, they're, and they're doing a lot of these things in school now, right? So, and I think that's better. Now, they still can't give people the individual attention that, you know, some people may need. But I think that they are doing a little bit better job from what I can see from the outside, you know, doing some of those. So I think for those people who are maybe looking at how can I learn? Well, number one, one of the first things to learn, there's a really great course on Coursera called Learning How to Learn. It goes through some of the science of learning and it's about a probably eight hour class uh, and it's free. It's by Barbara Oakley. And it's a really great primer on how you can learn better. How can you shortcut your own learning? How can you do those things? So I think that would, if there are people who are kind of curious about how do I learn and then how do I, maybe if, if traditional education isn't for me, what are some alternatives from other things they can do? I think that's a great thing to go review and to go look at. It's a good place to start. So we'll have that in the show notes because it's learning how to learn is, is such a good skill because the fact is you're going to learn things that just don't exist today for whatever reason. And the world changes, right? The world changes quickly, especially now more than ever. Yeah. So the opposite, we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, about not becoming obsolete. I did a, a talk on, on becoming future proof and future proof is, is I've got, a, I've got an article on that as well. 
you know, again, tech is going to change so fast or everything is going to change so fast. And, and a lot of people, you know, I had these developers that would come to me and they say, you know, Scott, I want to move to a different team. I want to use different technology because I'm afraid I'm going to be obsolete. And for a lot of them, though, it's, it's they're going to be obsolete because there's like seven or eight skills that I kind of listed out, like, you know, problem solving. It's like if you're not a good problem solver, you're going to become obsolete. Right. If you if you don't make good decisions, if you don't have good time management skills, if you don't have good information management skills, if you don't know how to learn well, if you're not you know, if you're not good at self-marketing, right, there's these six or seven or eight skills that are really, really important that really help people become future-proof, no matter what industry you're in or, or, or what happens with tech. If you can do these things and you're good at these things, then then it's going to help your career a lot. That's very good advice. Just a lot of people, they just get so focused on the details, like, I'm not going to know this, I'm not going to do that. But the fact is, it's like, you can all, you, you learn how to code, you can learn other things, right? The one thing I look for when I'm hiring, and if I could give anybody one piece of advice when they're in it, and it's, and it's not applicable in every situation, but the first thing I look for when I hire is show me you have an interest in my problem. Like if my problem is food deserts and you come to me and say, Scott, I'm passionate about solving this problem of food desert. I don't care if you can barely walk or talk. If you have a passion for the problem I'm trying to solve, then you're very attractive to me. Right. Likewise, when I was recruiting into the medical education company, I was looking very much for people who had some interest in either medicine or education. Like maybe they came from a family of doctors or maybe, you know, this or that. Right. So when people would come to me and they would say, Scott, I have an interest in this problem, then they would bubble to the top of the stack. Right. Even if they didn't have some of the skills or even if they didn't have some of that experience. But those are the types of things that can really set apart. And it also brings their passion. Right. I want people who are happy to be there. I want people who want to be there. And if they have some interest in the problems that we're trying to solve, then they're going to be happier and, and then we're going to get better work out of them. So that's the other thing is, is to really, again, that, that goes back to diversifying your interests. What else are you interested in? And then how do you maybe put those two things together? You might love sales, right? And you may love, you know, I don't know what else, cars. I don't care. Like I loved cars coming out of high school and I may have loved sales. Go sell cars. If you put those two together, you can do really great at that, right? So it's it's really often those combination of things that, that is where the magic happens. Because passionate people, they figure out how to do things, right? They learn things. They think about these things. They come back with ideas, right? They're just not sort of clocking and clocking out, right? They're not set and forget. They're kind of thinking and, you know, they get those aha moments that really make a big difference. Let's talk about the future. So, Jump Coach is something that you're working on. What are your future goals with Jump Coach? So, I mean, my goal, honestly, is to grow a million leaders in the next three years. There is a huge shortage of leaders, right? And it's kind of holding back our organization. Again, leadership is, is working through others to get things done. Most leaders or managers are really, really good people who had no training. Like most bad leaders out there, like, you know, I, I, there's the segments, you know, on, online that they're just bagging on hiring managers to make mistakes. Most of those are really good people doing the best they can with the training they got and what they know. And that's what I'm trying to fix. And again, our core training is is uh, uh, pay what you can. If you can't afford training, come take it. Don't pay me for it. I don't care. It's a social enterprise. So my goal is to get the leadership training people need in their hands so that they can build better companies, that they can hire better, that they can be better places to work for people. So that's really how I want to spend the next five or 10 years is just on a big scale, in a big way, how do we improve leadership and how do we help more people gain those skills and grow into those roles and, and be able to do those roles. So that's, that's where, where my focus is going forward. What are some other things you did right? Because you mentioned that you had a great work ethic, but what are some other things that you did right along with that work ethic that sort of made you successful? I didn't save a lot, but I always lived under my means, right? I was smart to not get too crazy. I bought a jet ski. That's probably the craziest thing I did, right? Don't buy a boat. That's the stupidest thing you can ever do. 
But what that enabled me to do is to not, like I could afford to sit up all night in the lab at the, at the newspaper because I didn't have a ton of bills to pay, right? And I'm, I was lucky, right? I didn't have any kids. I didn't have, you know, some, some stuff like that just happened. Life happens and, and it, that takes some of those opportunities away. But, but I, I did really good with that. I think just a lot of it's just attitude. And, and again, I think my parents really gave, gave both my brother and I both a really good work ethic. You know, we would push hard to get, to get really quality work, work out. But a lot of it is just not giving up and, you know, staying positive, just learning yourself. Like, I, I think over time, I really was able to kind of learn what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses. And weaknesses aren't necessarily stuff you want to fix. They're just stuff you want to work around. Like, some, like I'm, I'm fairly introverted. You can't fix that, right? You can't say, well, Scott, just get, you know, become less of an introvert, right? You kind of have to learn to say, I have limited social energy. How do I invest my social energy well, right? There's some stuff like that. So I think I learned, you know, I was able to kind of learn, you know, who I am and, and where I'm going to excel and where I may struggle and, and, and be able to work around some of those. Those are other, some other things that I did well, I feel like. And just looking after other people, right? It, that's always been my attitude. It's like, again, there's a quote from a, uh, Zig Ziglar, which is, uh, you can have anything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want. Right. And I remember that from when I was like 19, 20 year old taking the sales classes for Circus City. It's like, I remember that quote and I've always remembered that quote. And that's kind of, you know, kind of been an attitude probably since then. And I think that that's, that's served me well. So now we got to talk about that jet ski. How much does a jet ski even cost and why was it a mistake? So this one was like 10 grand. It was like a big sit down, two, three person jet ski. This was, you know, and, and it was a mistake because I live in Kentucky and we have a river and the river floods. So there's really only about, you know, I could really only get it out on the weekends. It was kind of a pain to get it out. Uh, if I could have had it at a dock, it wouldn't have been that bad, but th that's just gets that much more expensive. So I figured I was probably using it six or eight times a year. And then storage cost me, by the time I stored it, insured it, everything that was $1,000, $1,200 a year. So the cost per use, I figured out at one point was like four or $500. Oh, okay. So you might so, as well just rent it. Yeah. I'd have been much better off just renting something or not having it. Or it just got to where like the cost per use was just ridiculous. So, and I borrowed money to get it, right? That was, that was the stupider thing too. So yeah, it was yeah. just, no, you know, I mean, we live and we learn. And you can say you ra you know how to ride a jet ski. So. Yeah. I mean, it was fun. I had a good time. <laughs> but, but yeah, that was not the smartest thing I've done. Now you mentioned that you're introverted. So what are some steps and advice that you'd have for introverts to make sure they succeed, right? Because, you know, there are people demand you and it's not always easy to say like, hey, I need my alone time or what are the steps and you would take to take care of yourself? For one, don't feel bad about it, right? There's introverts, there's extroverts. The world needs both, right? I'm a bookworm. I'll sit here and read a bunch of books that would drive extroverts crazy, but that helps me do other things that are helpful, right? That, that helps me add value to the world in different ways. So the first thing is just don't beat yourself up over it. Just be yourself, right? You're not, you know, when I was younger, it was a lot easier to just go out all the time. Like I said, I partied a lot when I was probably 19 to 23. It was just a different age, different time. You know, at that point in your life, you know, when you're younger, you just wanted that. You just want to be out with your friends and that kind of stuff. So, so I still did a lot of that kind of stuff. But, but kind of once things settled out, you know, I like to just get head down and do work. There's nothing wrong with that. It is important... Like I said, I, I've learned to invest my social energy wisely. Like I do networking stuff, but I know that that's going to wear me out. Some people can go do networking stuff three days a week. They can spend hours and hours and hours and doing this kind of stuff. I know I have to be really precise. My last job, one of the things that made it really hard for me is my CEO was very extroverted and he loved meetings. 
And he would sit in meetings 50 hours a week if he could. And then he would want to go to dinner with everybody. Like, I mean, literally, it was just insane. And I just recognized that I can't do that. And I had to negotiate that with him. And I said, look, I can't do this. I can't keep up with you. I need time to step back, you know, and process all this stuff that's coming at me. And, and it's, um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think really learn to manage it, learn to manage yourself and, and then don't be afraid to ask for help from people around you. Uh, because again, you're going to bring things to the table that they don't you, there's a lot of good things that you're going to be able to do that they can't do. So don't feel bad about what you can't do. You know, feel good about what you can no, that's some great advice. So as we come to a close, what do you sort of want to leave off with any final thoughts that you want to kind of tell the listener? I'm a big fan of authenticity in hiring and jobs and leadership and everything, right? Because again, it's, it's, you know, one of the magic things in hiring is you get an authentic candidate, an authentic team. And if there's a match, that's a really, really good thing. But that only happens if people are willing to be authentic. And companies are willing to be authentic, which is the big one I'm pushing on companies to get better at, right? Leaders, you know, how do you be more authentic is the, what are your good things and your bad things? You got to be honest about both. Right. But to me, I think everything is better when people are comfortable being who they are, good things and bad, right? Nobody's perfect. None of us are perfect. We're all going to have problems. We got to be accepting and work through those, but we've got to be, be willing to just, you know, to be authentic. And, that, and that's when a lot of good things happen. So I think the more, you know, people can do to just be comfortable and accepting of who they are and to look for the places that they can add value and the things where they're unique and that they can do, then I think the better off we all are. And, and uh, the happier they're going to be and the, then the better off uh, society as a whole is going to be. It just changes a lot of things because there's so much cost related to inauthenticity, right? Then it just causes this extra layer and all this extra friction that you can just avoid by just, you know, cutting straight to the chase, being upfront, being transparent. So how would people get in contact with you and support you? Yeah, the best place to get hold of me is the jumpcoach.com. I'll put up a page. We've talked about a lot of stuff uh, today, but I'll put up a page over there at jumpcoach.com uh, slash no degree. And we'll, uh, and I'll, and I'll put some links to some of the stuff that we talked about, but yeah, reach out to me over there and uh, you know, uh, you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, feel free. And uh, if you're interested in leadership, uh, definitely look me up. My mission is to help you. Right. So if there's some way I can help you come find me and I'll, and I'll, and I'll see what I can do. So that domain was available. I know I had to buy it. I didn't have to pay too much for it, but it was worth it was worth it to get it because okay, I, I okay. yeah, I mean, yeah. I I know some domains like I tried to get some and they weren't even as good as Jump Coach and they were asking like 40, 50 k and I was like, no, nah, it wasn't anywhere near okay, that. Good, it, good, was, good. it was it was in the single thousands, so it no, wasn't that's that's that. not bad. I mean, I yeah. got mine for fourteen hundred, so I I lucked out. It's yeah. it's tough because some of these domain squatters they just they're like, okay, no, you're not getting it. They're ruthless. Uh, I'm glad you got the domain. I know you're going to make a big difference. Thank you so much for your time. I know the audience is going to get so much value out of it. I love just all the advice you have. And I wish you the best of success. And I know you'll create leaders out of the listeners for this episode. All right, man. Well, Jenna, thanks so much for having me on. And, uh, and uh, look forward to catching up in the future. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D 
last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. Yeah, so, you got no degree, no problem, no problem, any problem, we can solve them, we got this, linked insomnia, keeps us evolving, growing in the knowing, wisdom is flowing, if you didn't know, now you know where I'm going, if you didn't know, now you know, let's sing that again everybody, no degree, no problem, any problem, we can solve them, Insomnia keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing The wisdom is flowing If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going No degree, no problem Any problem, we can solve Linked insomnia keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing The wisdom is flowing If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going